Well, hey, good morning. How we doing? Take your Bibles and turn to uh, 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13. We have been going chapter by chapter, verse through verse through this book. We've just got a couple weeks left. This series ends on Easter. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand. There's ushers. They'll get a copy of God's Word into your hands. I'd love for you to actually have a Bible in front of you because we're going to be looking at this topic of love. 1 Corinthians 13, as you look at the book of 1 Corinthians 15, chapters 13 and chapters 15, those are the highlights, those are the mountaintops in this study. That's the good news. The bad news is the problem with teaching 1 Corinthians 13 is you're all very familiar with what it says in that chapter. Like how many of you had 1 Corinthians 13 read at your wedding? Can anybody say, yeah, this was read? Yeah, for sure. There's a bunch of you. How many of you would say that you could almost quote to me certain verses from this chapter? There's probably somebody in this room who went to Hobby Lobby, you bought your poster, and this chapter is hanging somewhere in your house or it's on your fridge to remind you of what love means. There could even be somebody in this room who has this chapter tattooed on the, probably not the whole chapter, that would be weird, but a phrase or so from this chapter. Like this is very familiar territory. And my concern when we go into a passage of scripture that's very familiar with many of us is that we will hear what we've heard time and again and go, oh yeah, I already got that. And uh, I definitely don't want that to be the case this morning. So what I want to do is I just want to open our time in God's word with prayer praying that God would move uh, in a new way as we look at a familiar passage. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for uh, your word, and uh, I thank you for uh, difficult passages and familiar passages, and my prayer would be that as we look at this important topic this morning, that uh, you would fill this place, that your spirit would do what only your spirit can do, and that is uh, convict and uh, transform. Help us to uh, see what you have to say for us this morning in a new light. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So if you found chapters 13, as I normally do, I'm probably not going to start there anyways. I'm going to go back into chapter 12. I want to kind of ramp into what we're talking about. Chapter 13 didn't just appear in the middle of a vacuum. It's connected to what Paul was teaching in 12 and where he's going to be going in chapter 14. So I'm going to pick it up in verse 27 of chapter 12. And there Paul writes, he says, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. If you remember last week, we were talking about that we're all unique. We all have different giftedness. And he introduced this topic of spiritual gifts next week. It's going to continue into chapter 14. And in verse 28, he lists a partial list of some of these gifts. He says, and God is appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. All are apostles, are, are, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all work miracles, do all possess gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret, but earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. So it's interesting to me that chapter 13 kind of flows out of an introduction into a study on spiritual gifts that will be concluded next week with 40 verses in chapter 14. My, my point being that we can make application, and I think it's good to make application of what we're taught in 1 Corinthians 13, 
to how love works its way out in our marriages or how it works its way out in our families or in other relationships or with our neighbors. But the primary purpose, the primary intent of Paul writing this definition of love and this narrative on love is in the context of when we gather as a local church. And you won't be able to do what he's commanded you to do in chapter 12, which is all of us with our uniqueness and differentness and giftedness come together and work in unison and harmony in the body of the church unless you understand this idea that he's teaching on love. He introduces it. He doesn't say it's a more excellent way, like, hey, here's a better option. I would say that when he says this is a most excellent way or a more excellent way, it's the only option. I live up in... Bightley, Michigan, that's where my wife and I have a home, and the nearest um, point of civilization to our house is this little grocery store slash gas station called Naughty Pine. And if you've ever dreamt of owning a store in the middle of nowhere, um, that dream's already taken. You gotta come up with a new one, okay? Because that is Naughty Pine, and it can, well, basically, we can go there to get everything that anybody would ever need in Bightley, which is um, bread, gas, milk, and bait. Like, like, what else would you need? You might be able to even get ammo there, I'm not sure. But, but that's this little outpost. And for me to get from my house to Naughty Pine grocery store and gas station, I can go two ways. I can take Warner, I can take it down to 11 mile, take a right, and it's two miles down on the right. Or I can turn before Warner and I can take Hayes. The problem with taking Hayes is as you go down Hayes, it turns into a dirt road. And when it gets to the creek or the south branch of the uh, Pierre Marquette that I have to cross, the bridge is out. You can't get to Naughty Pine from Hayes Street. It's a dead end. So when he's saying, here's a more excellent way, he's not saying, you've got two options, here's a better one. I actually think he's suggesting that this is the only way. In the book of Matthew, God says that he is building his church. And what he introduced to us in chapter 12 was all of us are to play a role. All of us have a function with our giftedness. We all play a part. And, and the picture would be kind of like this wall. We're each a brick in the wall. Now, what is the difference between bricks and just a pile, or I mean a wall and just a pile of bricks? What's the difference? I know this is a complicated question. It's already 11 o'clock in the morning, but, but ramp up to this. The difference between a pile of bricks and a wall is what? Mortar. mortar, thank you. Okay, without mortar, it's just a pile of bricks. You wouldn't even want to sit in this section. You'd be at risk, okay? Love is the mortar that takes a church from being ununified and just a bunch of people. It's what holds together our marriages. So I jump into 1 Corinthians 13. Verse 1, here's the first point, love qualifies. It qualifies what I say, it qualifies what I know, it qualifies what I do. Look for these three things in these first three verses. Verse 1, it says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Notice he didn't say I am white noise. White noise isn't bad, you can fall asleep to that pretty easy. He says, I'm an irritating noise. I'm a, like a cymbal slamming, like a gong clanging. I have a uh, grandson. He's three years old, just turned three. His name is Ben. He is obsessed with the drums. You ever spend a lot of time listening to a three-year-old play the drums? 
So a couple weeks ago, I'm, I'm up in my office, it's a Thursday morning, Ben comes up and he's really affectionate with me, which isn't his normal mode of operation. And he comes into the office and he gives me a hug and he's like, I'm so happy to see you. And he grabs my finger and he's like, come with me. And I take him down the hallway and he leads me down the hallway and we get down to the bottom of the stairs from my office and at that point you've got an option. I can either go down another set of stairs and take him to his class where he needs to go, but he is insistent that I go to the auditorium. And I'm thinking, well, he must want to see my wife. She's here and she wants to see grandma. Uh, not the case. Guess why he wanted to come to the auditorium? The drums. That was his whole purpose in taking me here. He wanted to bang on the drums. It's not a pleasant sound. And what Paul is illustrating here is he's saying, everything that you say, if you don't have love for the person that you're communicating to, all it is is just noise. He goes on and says, it's not just what you say, it's what you know, verse 2. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing qualifies what I say. Everything that I know is qualified. Am I able to love? It's in what we do. Verse 3, if I give away all I have and I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. All my words, all my actions, all of my thoughts, everything that I do and say is qualified by love. Without love, I am disqualified. Everything else doesn't matter. So to help illustrate this, I'm going to call a friend of mine up. Billy, where are you? Yeah, there you are. Come on up here. So what Billy does, Billy's in my small group, and I never see him at church. I saw him this morning. I'm like, I never see you. He goes, of course you don't. I sit right in the middle. You never look straight down the middle aisle. So he hides in broad daylight, usually just in the shade under the balcony. But I'm so glad that you're here. Is your wife Abby here too? Yes. Where is she? Right next to me. Abby, get up here. Yeah, right I need, I'm going I'm to need, need you up here, too. I didn't see you, but I did see Billy. So, so Abby and Billy, they're in my small group. They've been married. And Billy, I, you know what? I'd rather talk to Abby than you. So you just, you just stand over here. We'll, we'll put Abby on the spot here. So, Abby, I, w- I want you to tell me some things about your husband. Some of these things I know. Just go stand by him like, like you guys like each other, okay? Um, so, so some things about Billy. Just can I ask you some questions? Sure. Does he work hard? Okay, so he's a, he's a good provider. Okay. Um, good dad? Oh, yeah. Good dad. Okay. Um, can he make you laugh? Is he fun to be around? He thinks so. <laughs> okay, so, so we got that going for us. Okay, so, so some of the things I'm not so, so, so good at is, is he handy around the house? <laughs> okay, okay so, so does he know who to call when something's broke? Okay, so we've got, you've got that going for you too, okay? Okay, more difficult. How does he treat your mom? Okay, so he, he handles the mother-in-law thing pretty well, right? Okay, so he's checking a lot of boxes, right? Like his, his, a, his a husband, his a family, like he's looking at him, he's grinning, he's like, man, I'm just killing it. <laughs> Here's a question for you. If he does all of these things and he cares for you and he provides for you and he protects you and does all of these things, but at the end of the day, you're not sure he loves you and you've got your doubts whether he actually loves you, how much is the rest of that stuff worth? Nothing. Nothing. See, like, we know this inherently. Thank you, guys. And I will see you from now on sitting down the middle. I'm going to make an effort at that. 
See, see, we know this inherently in our relationships, parents. Let's say you have a kid. Let's make it worse. Let's say you have a high school kid. Okay, and um, you're, you're, you're raising your kids and your kid is respectful of you and they work hard, they've got a good work ethic and you're happy with their friends and they're doing well at school and, and they're just checking so many of these boxes that you'd want for your kids. But the reality is they suggest to you that you drop them off a block away from school so that you don't embarrass them in front of their friends. They roll their eyes when you suggest a family vacation or spending time together. They no, lamb, they no longer laugh at your dad jokes. Like there's no indication that they love you. How's, how's that relationship? See, we inherently know that love is the thing that qualifies everything else. I would suggest that if love is not in your marriage, if it's not in your household, if it's not in your family, you can have a lot of other things going for you, but it's broken. Let's jump to verse 8. I'm going to come back to the middle verses in a minute, but I want to um, jump to verse 8. The first point was love qualifies. Here's the second thing, love endures. Verse 8 says, as for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, and, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Okay, in our discussion on spiritual gifts, which was a little bit last week, but it's more next week, these become very important verses of understanding how the gifts operate, do all the gifts operate, have some gifts cease, so they continue. So there's a lot of depth in these verses that I'm not going to touch on in our context today, and I won't next week because I'm not here because I took the week off and we talked on spiritual gifts because I'm no fool, okay? But in our context today, you need to understand that there's one enduring thing. It says in verse 10, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, but when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mere dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Paul is painting in these verses three different word pictures. He is making illustrations, all three illustrations, from partial to perfect, from child to man, from foggy to clear, all three word pictures tell the same story. They illustrate the same thing. There is a day coming when what we currently think is valuable and important will no longer be that important. The things that we um, value, the things that we use to um, measure ourselves, to give ourselves value, to give ourselves identity, our jobs, our bank accounts, our relationships, all of these things will someday pass away. Even the giftedness that God has given us to be used for the church today someday will be obsolete. There is a day coming very quickly when Christ returns. That's what he's referring to in this text when he talks about when the perfect comes. That we won't need preaching anymore. When we get to heaven, I am so unemployed. There's no role for a preacher in heaven because you will have exposure and access to God himself. Chris, unemployed. He's homeless in heaven. No need for a worship leader because we are in the presence of the King of Kings. And we will worship, but we will worship not what we see today dimly or glimpses of, but we will worship 
the very thing that we have access to. Okay? The currency in heaven in all of eternity is love. Tyler, get up here for a second, okay? So I've known Tyler for a lot of years. I've known him since he was a freshman in high school. You're now married, correct? Correct. How long have you been married? Uh, two years and three months. Two years and three months. That was really good. You didn't need to just said. She's like, no, okay, how long has he been married? Almost three years. <laughs> there is nothing better than a guy who with full confidence says two years and three months and his wife just shakes her head. There's nothing better than that. Okay, so since you have no clue of how long you've been married, I'm going to go back to almost three years ago when you were doing your premarital or counseling. Who yeah. did that for you? Eric. Okay, so Eric did that. I bet he talked to you about the importance of spending time with your wife and date night, correct? Correct. So I'm going to just test this, okay? Tell me about your last date. When was it? Yesterday. Oh, okay. You're, you're winning so far. Yeah. Okay, what did you do on the date? Now, before you say this, in the 9 o'clock service, the 20s pastor Adam said, I think we went out for dinner. Please do better than that. Okay, so what was your date yesterday? We went shopping in GR and then went out to get food. <laughs> where, where did you go to get food? Uh, did it involve a drive-thru or did you actually sit down? Sit down. Okay, so it was a sit-down dinner, just you and your bride of almost three years. Correct. Fantastic. Like, like, love is important in a relationship, right? So for, for coming up here, I just, I just want to reward you because I didn't know what you were going to say as it related to date. I didn't know if he was going to say like a month ago, but I want to make sure that your next date, can that be on me? Sure. Okay, so I'm carrying some cash. Here you <laughs> go. I, go to I only have big bills. Those are thousands, <laughs> okay? Um, those are thousands, but go ahead and use those and, and enjoy yourself, okay, on me, your next date. Now, that's Kenyan currency. Um, <laughs> And I don't know what a thousand's worth in Kenyan currency in America. I doubt it gets you through the Culver's drive-thru. You can try. <laughs> they're, they're, they're probably going to give you some grief because, well, if, if a bill has a picture of an elephant on it, it's probably not going to spend well here, right? <laughs> Listen. Love qualifies everything we do. If, if, if you're failing at this, you're failing at everything. And you need to know that love is the currency for all of eternity. I'm going to argue later that the entire scope of human history is a canvas where God has displayed his infinite love for us. But before I get there, I want to spend a little bit of time. We're talking about love in this generic sense. I've looked at many definitions. I did a lot of research this week on the topic of love. And I would argue that verses 4 through 7 through the beginning of 8, it is the best definition of love that I can find anywhere. It's a little complicated to work through because it has 15 descriptors of what love is and what love is not. So I want to spend a little bit of time looking at how 1 Corinthians defines love, but I'm going to do it solely by looking at the negatives. Can we do that first? So let me group these. We're going to define love here for a minute. It says this in verse 4. Love is patient, kind. Those are positive. Here start the negatives. Love does not envy or boast. Love is not envious. There's the first one. It's not jealous. Some of your translations say jealousy or envious is wanting what another person has. It's the idea of coveting that we want what they have or in its more um, wicked form, it is not wanting them to have what they have. It's not that you don't just want it. You would, even if you don't get it, you don't want them to have it. It is a form of 
um, jealousy that you don't want for the other person what you can't have for yourself. It says that love is not boastful. It doesn't envy or boast. Boasting is basically the verbal communication that we are um, head and shoulders above the crowd, that we are communicating. We are the star of our own story. We are, um, all stories point out our abilities and strengths. We minimize our weaknesses, boastful. Goes on and it says, it is not arrogant. Arrogant, we love to be made much of. We like to be uh, admired. And you gotta remember, in looking at this word arrogant, I challenge you, that again, all of this is in the context of talking about giftedness as it relates to the local church. So one of the ways that we can be arrogant is we begin to take credit based off our giftedness for the things that we've been able to accomplish. I wanna step back from that for a moment and just say that anything that you've accomplished is based off a gift or an ability that God has given you. So at the end of the day, for everything that we've accomplished, who should get the credit? God should. If, if God's given you um, an ability and a strong mind or a strong business sense and you've been successful in the arenas where God has gifted you, at the end of the day, you can be thankful for that, but you can't take credit for that. That was all based off of an ability that God gave you. Now you've stewarded it well, that's a great thing, but at the end of the day, the glory goes back to God. Um, I had Billy up here. Billy has been a soccer coach in our community for a lot of years. I've coached soccer uh, with and against Billy in this community, okay? Here's what I know. I'm sure there's some years that he's had better teams than I had, and there's other years where I've had better teams than he has. And both of us, we would tend to, if we're not careful, think that when we have a really good team, then we're a really good coach. And when we have a really bad team, we start to doubt our coaching ability. Here's what both of us know. When we have good teams or bad teams, very little of that is dependent on our coaching ability. What makes the difference? The talent of the players we've been entrusted with. If you volunteered to coach your kid's uh, under eight ASO team, okay, you want the kid that is a head and shoulders taller than everybody else in the league that runs faster, is stronger, and can kick a ball harder. You'll win all your games. But if you convince yourself that because you have that kid, you're the good coach, you're mistaken. See, it's your ability to accomplish is a gift. Don't be arrogant in what God has entrusted to you to steward. It's interesting, in the book of John, we're reading about John the Baptist in the early um, chapters where God, Christ refers to him as the greatest of any man who's ever lived. He was the forerunner to Jesus Christ. But what John the Baptist declares when, when Jesus Christ comes on the scene and he's had a ministry, but Jesus is going to come, John the Baptist says, um, I must decrease so that he can increase. Love is not arrogant. It's not rude. Rude is the opposite of graceful. Uh, it means that there's no consideration. It is acting without concern for the other person person. Love is not rude. It is not insistent on its own way. It's not insistent on its own way. One of the commentaries, a guy by the name of Lenski wrote this. He said, cure selfishness and you've just replanted the Garden of Eden. Not that it deals with the issue of our sin, but our sin at its core is usually 
because of our selfishness. It's because of our pride, our arrogance, but it's also our selfishness that's insisting on its own way. And I want to dive a little bit deeper here because there's some ways that we insist on our own way and some things that we confuse love for that really isn't love. Um, one of the things that our culture and that we can confuse love for is attraction. It's attraction. Now, attraction is a good thing. Love often starts based off attraction. When I first met my wife, I wasn't in love with her. I was attracted to her. And attraction then grew into love. Now, it took some time because when I met her and was first attracted to her and I said, I want to hang out with this girl, I had to get rid of her boyfriend who was my best friend. Very complicated. <laughs> but, but it started with attraction and it grows into love. Attraction is this other person. I'm just telling you love's deeper. Here's why. How can I be fully loved if my relationship is only based off attraction? Because if the relationship is solely on attraction, here's what I know. There's some aspects of my personality. There's some things about me that they're not, that's not attractive. So if attraction is the basis of love, I better keep some aspects of who I am hidden from the person I'm in relationship with because if I expose them, the odds of them still being attracted to me, if that is love, are greatly diminished. See, that's the problem. It's a facade. And there are marriages that begin based off attraction, but that attraction becomes hard to maintain when you live together every day and all of these weaknesses are exposed. See, love goes beyond attraction. Nobody wants to be loved because the other person's attracted to you. You want to be loved in spite of the things about you that are attractive, even for the things that are unattractive about you. Five years ago, this guy, uh, John Legend, he wrote a song called All of Me. And it became very popular. It was played at weddings. It, became, it jumped to number one. And the lyrics kind of went, all of me loves all of you. And then the lyrics go, I love your perfect imperfections. Bam, number one song. Because everybody wants to be loved that way, not just for the good parts about them, but for the parts that are less attractive. In my generation, 30 years ago, it was Billy Joel singing, Just the Way You Are. And in our music, often love is expressed, like, like deep love is beyond a, attraction. I would argue that it's a choice. Another thing that we mistake love sometimes for is a partnership. And it can be about seeking our own good. Like we want to accomplish some things. Like we, we want to have a family. And we want to have kids. And then we want to raise kids. And then we want to get rid of kids so that we can have grandkids. Noble pursuit. Okay? Or we partner, we get married. And what we want to accomplish is we want to get the house or the boat or the cottage or whatever we think will get us to the point where we arrived and it will be happy. See, and sometimes marriages become partnerships or love is confused with a negotiation. If you do this for me, then I'll do this for you and we're partnering to accomplish this. The problem is when love is reduced to a partnership, you've got the obvious problem. What remains when the kids are gone? What remains when the goal is achieved but all that's left is an emptiness? See, I, I could bore you with studies, and I studied a lot this week on the 
need that we all have to be loved and a sense of belonging and what happens to infants that aren't loved in the early years of their life and study after study. I worked hard on the background, but all it does is prove what you already know. Psychologists and the Bible agree. We are hardwired to receive love. Could we just agree on that? We are also hardwired to express love. To be in a loving relationship where we are receiving and expressing love, it is what brings joy and meaning to life. Love is not irritable. Irritable is the outward expression of selfishness. When I don't get when I, what I want, when my plans are interrupted, when people disappoint, when I don't get the uh, respect or attention that I believe that I deserve... I quickly become irritable. We have this strong craving for a trouble-free life and we have a picture in our life of how things are supposed to go and when they don't go according to what we expect, we become quickly irritable. Not irritable, that is selfishness on display. The next thing, it says love is not resentful. The New American Standard says it doesn't take into account a wrong suffered. Taking into account, I like that definition better because it has a a ledger kind of as a picture, an accountant has a picture where he is keeping track, he is keeping score. That every time you are offended in your relationship, it's like, boom, I'm not going to forget that. I'm writing it down. And if I don't write it down, I'm going to sear it in my memory so that I don't forget. Or maybe worse, you do write it down and you keep journals. Or maybe even worse yet, you tell your mom. Okay? Keeping account. Love is not resentful. Does not rejoice in wrongdoing. Love does not embrace what is wrong. Got to be careful here. Because in our culture, too often, love is associated. If you want to know what love is, well, it's blanket acceptance. That person just accepts me however I am. There's no questioning. There's no judging. There's no trying to impose values or beliefs onto another person person love is best expressed solely through cheerleading and applause you know what I'm, I'm struggling in my marriage and I'm not sure I'm happy and and I'm thinking of leaving uh, good for you whatever makes you happy you know what, I've got this opportunity, this house has come on the market, and it's going to put me over the edge of insolvency for the next 30 years of my life. But I think it's the thing that we need to make us happy. Oh man, I'm so happy for you, go for it. See, that's not love. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. It's not blanket acceptance. Sometimes to express love, you've got to say the difficult thing and risk the relationship in order to be truly loving to that other person. The problem with blanket acceptance, I'll just give you one, it removes and it avoids any need for repentance. We are so quick in our culture to give applause to every poor decision that is made, and we are so slow to be willing to take the risk to say, hey, you're not going in a direction that's good. This isn't going to end well. You're making a bad choice. This is sin. It doesn't lead to repentance. The problem with blanket acceptance is it fills you without humbling you. 
Isaiah 5.20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness. So that's the eight negatives to love. And as I prepared this message and started to look at the definition of love, I I, got to tell you, I became very nervous of how this was going to come across in the room because if we're not careful, what happens is you're looking at the relationships in your life and you're scoring them. And you're seeing a list and you're saying, all those things love isn't supposed to be is exactly what love has proven to be in my past. And there's hurt in my relationships and everything you just described is exactly what the people have loved me, how they've treated me. They've been irritable, they've been rude, they haven't considered themselves, they've been selfish. All of us have been hurt in love's clothing, right? Maybe worse, you're looking at the list and you're saying, this isn't the way I love. If I'm honest, I'm looking at my marriage and this isn't the way that I behave. All the things that I'm not supposed to do, those are the very things that I'm doing. And if that's the things that love isn't supposed to be, I'm in deep weeds because I'm irritable and I don't know how to get rid of my irritability and fix this in any way measure up to what love or how love is just described. So what happens is we become jaded. And we begin to think that love is unattainable, that it's an illusion, that this is something found in the middle of 1 Corinthians. And though it's a wonderful definition, it is an unattainable goal. And we just become sarcastic to the whole idea of love. One of the best definitions I saw of love, it's in Merriam-Webster, it's got eight definitions. Number eight, love is described, it's defined as this, a score of zero. Like a score of zero. Well, what was the guy referring to? Tennis. Okay, so I start to think about this. So if you don't know tennis, the way the scoring works, if a game is, it's the first point of a game and I'm serving and I lose that first point, the score is now love 15. My score first, I have love, I have zero, I have no points. Who came up with love to describe zero points? Like, I don't know who invented tennis. But can we describe, that guy had some things in his past. He was pretty jaded. Can we just agree to that? Hopefully this will describe what I'm talking about well. We don't want to get to the point where we become so jaded on love that we think it's unattainable. Here's a wonderful ad for locale ice cream. It'll prove my point. Take a look. So you guys have a little thing, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Cute. But cute doesn't get you ice cream. You know what does? Realizing love is an illusion and we all die alone. Isn't that good? But we're in love. And you know what? Love is always worth it in the end. Really? No. I am close. Is he okay? Are any of us okay? I'm not. Ice cream for adults. Cause adults need a lot of ice cream. That turned pretty dark, didn't it? I don't need attitude from my ice cream guy, okay? But, but there's, like if we're not careful, we begin to look at love and say, it's a wonderful illusion when you're young. But life has taught me that reality is very different from that. And I know that we're coming at this from different angles and different perspectives because of different experiences in this room. And my fear would be that as we define love and as we keep score from love, we would say, man, I want to be loved the way that this describes. I want to love the way that it's described here. 
but I've never seen it. And, and, and how do I model something that I haven't seen? And so we've spent some time talking about how love qualifies, how it's endures, and how it's defined. If I'm going to go through the positives of this list, can I do it this way? Rather than just go through the definitions, because we'll all get bored with that, can I just show you how in the positives of love, we can attach that to a way in which love has been on full display for us if we'll focus our attention on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Look at the first one on the list, love displayed. Big idea before I forget this. Big idea is this. We only learn to love when we see God's love on full display. We only learn to love when we see God's love on full display. Jesus. Jesus. It says in verse 4 that love is patient. Uh, New, or the King James Version, New King James Version uses the word suffereth long. That love suffers long. Now, I don't mean this wrong, but in the definition of love being patient, if it's long-suffering, implied in that that there's suffering involved, right? I don't have to be patient with somebody that doesn't annoy me. It's when the person is annoying, when they're unattractive, when they've disappointed, that's when love is on display. Key word is suffers, suffers well. Love is a choice. Please hear that. Attraction is a response. Love is a choice. Love is a choice. It is a decision of the will. It is not just an emotion. So if I'm supposed to suffer long, if that's what love is, but actually my reality is that I'm irritable quick, how do I get from irritable quick to suffering long? And can I explain something? There's no shortcut to that. You've got to die to yourself. You've got to die to yourself and say, it's not all about me. We define love as you before me. I've got to prioritize the other person. It's interesting. I believe that Jesus' love is on full display, even as we're here today. In 2 Peter 3, Peter is writing about what it's going to be like before the return of Christ, what those end days or last days look like. And it says in 2 Peter 3, it says scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. Makes sense. That's what scoffers do, right? They scoff. Following their own sinful desires, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? They're saying, why does the Lord delay in his return? Verse 9 answers that. It says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish but that all should reach repentance. Our gathering today is proof of the patience of the love of God for us. Listen, if I were God, if you were God, what would it take for you to say enough? What has God been patient with in the last 2,000 years? Has, has we denied the existence of God? Has the name of Jesus Christ around the globe is profaned more than any other name? Has we look at ourselves as the most evolved, top of the food chain, we're the most significant being, and God is ignored? How long would it take you, if you were God, to say enough? 
And yet God's patient is, patience is on display because he endures the lack of respect of men. Why? Because he's proving that he loves us. He's not wishing that any of us would perish, but that all of us would come to repentance. Let's take this out of the global. Let's take it into the micro, into our own lives. Do you guys test God's patience? Day to day? Week to week? Like, it's 11 o'clock this morning, and some of you are still furious because you stayed up too late. Why? Well, I don't want to talk about Michigan State. That was my bad. <laughs> too soon? Too soon? Okay, sorry about that. So, so all of a sudden, we are so disrupted by other things. We are so distracted by other things. Are, are you surprised if you look at your own lives that God hasn't gotten to the point where he just says enough? But he doesn't. Because his love is on full display. God's love is patient. God's love is kind. Now, love is a thing. It is displayed through our kindness. For, for love to be love, it has to be evident. It has to be on display. So a, a, a husband looks at his wife and I say, do you love your wife? And the guy's like, sure I do. I take a bullet for her. Awesome. Awesome. Nobody's shooting at your wife right now. That's a theoretical construct, and you can't say that the proof of your love is the willingness to take something that hasn't happened. How about this? If you want to prove that you love your wife, how about you turn off Sports Center for 10 minutes and listen to her? That would be a kindness. Love has to be on display, and I would argue all day that the purpose of creation and everything involved in our universe is to put on full display the love of God. It tells us in Ephesians 1, speaking of God the Father, it says, He chose us in Him, being Jesus Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Hear this. In love, He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. This is God's love on display John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes will not perish but have everlasting life. All of human history, all of God's interaction with us as a creation has been for the purpose of displaying his love. God is not just patient. His love is visible. It is kind. It is on display. Love rejoices in the truth. In John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. In Jesus, when Jesus was on earth, when I look at his conversations and his interactions with people, I don't sense that he pulled punches, that he sugarcoated things. He never came into the world and said, I think in your sinfulness you guys are okay. I want to be fully accepting, unconditional. God loves us unconditionally. And I don't want to lose that from our vocabulary because it's important and it's true. God's love is not dependent on anything that we bring to the table. God's love doesn't change for us based off our performance. But if you're confusing unconditional love with blanket acceptance, that's not what we mean by unconditional love. God loves you way too much for that. And when we refer to unconditional love, it is absolutely true that God's love for you is not conditioned on anything you bring to the table or what you do, but it is conditional on what Jesus Christ did for you in your place. 
And God is not fully accepted of where you sit in your current condition in your sin. But God's love is a penetrating, pursuing love that is not just there to leave you where you are and accept you as you are. But its desire is to change you and to lead you from here to there. That's what's meant by unconditional love. He loves you not because of what you did, but it doesn't mean that he wants to leave you where you are. He's got such a better way. God's love rejoices in the truth. It bears all things. It's interesting, as I studied this this week, this bears all things, it has the idea of covering, of keeping things silent. Proverbs 10, 12 says, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. New Testament, 1 Peter 4, 8 says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. This idea of bearing all things, it means that when somebody else falls short or someone else uh, Uh, fails at any level, we're not there to expose those faults. It's covered. As I was thinking that through, I was reminded of Isaiah 53, 4, where prophesying about a coming Messiah, Jesus, Isaiah writes, surely he, being Jesus, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. So Jesus bears our griefs, he carries our sorrows, he covers our sin. And where this gets important for you to understand, though it's easy for us to look at our failures and let us be defined by our actions and our activities and our regrets, your sin is covered because Jesus bears all things. When Jesus looks at you, when God the Father looks at you, you are viewed as holy, not because you are, but Jesus declared you holy because his blood covers your transgressions. Jesus bears all things. He believes all things. The idea here is innocent until proven guilty, quick to give the benefit of the doubt. Sadly, in too many situations in marriage counseling, what happens is we run into spouses who have hard hearts. They have a disposition where they're always going to be suspicious. They never give the benefit of the doubt. And their partner is guilty until proven innocent. That's not God's heart for you. That's not God's heart for you. He believes all things. He is appealing to you in Hebrews 3 and 4, three times he says, listen, if you hear my voice today, don't harden your heart. Listen to what I am calling you to. It's interesting. God's love so exceeds just believing in all things. Romans 5 verse 8 says, but God showed his love for us and that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So this idea of believing all things, thinking the best of us, what Jesus did on our behalf is so much better than just believing in us. He did what he believed was true. He justified us. That means though we're guilty, we're no longer guilty. We're declared innocent. He hopes all things. Love hopes all things. Love refuses to take failure as final. And though I might not be able to agree where you are, I'm not going to believe that you will always be there. Philippians 1.6 says, 
Again, speaking of Jesus, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. I love what the psalmist says in Psalm 138. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. And when we marry Psalm 138 to Ephesians 2.10, which says that we are his workmanship, what it tells us is God's never going to let go of us. He never gives up. He continues to love us. Believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. That word endures, it's a military term. It means to hold the fort. Like, like I'm going to guard this post. And if it costs me my life, I'm not giving up. I'm going to guard this with everything that I have. Love will not quit loving John 15, 13 says, greater love has no man than this, that he lays down his life for his friends. What more would Jesus have to do? What more must he say? What more must he express? What action needs to go with his words beyond what he's already done? He's gone to the cross and paid the penalty for your sin. It endures all things. Here's the last one. Love never fails. In John 13, 1, it says, now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, hear this, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them till the end. It's referring to everything that finishes the book of John through the trials, through the betrayal, through the cross, and through the resurrection. He loved his own well. But God's love isn't just loving us until the end, it's a conquering love. Romans 8, 35 says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? It goes on and says, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. And Paul goes on and writes, for I am sure that neither life nor death nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. My fear in opening 1 Corinthians 13 is that we would look horizontally and we would keep score of how well we're doing loving or how well we're being loved and we would miss the very point that love is on full display through the person of Jesus Christ. And the three takeaways from that are simply this. Please hear me. You're loved. You are loved. Now, that's become a little cliche around our church harvest. We had for five years on a sign in front of this building, you are loved. Man, did that tick off people in our community. Every few months or a couple times a year, somebody would write us and say, take that down. That's not true. I'm not, I mean, it triggered strong emotions. You guys aren't a loving church. You're a judging church. And I know this about this person. You're just, like, we would just get hammered for that thing. Please hear me. You are loved. Not because of us. Because of who we worship. And I can't speak for what's happened in your marriage or in your families or in your childhood. And I understand when we talk about love, the wounds often go deep. But as you sit here this morning, rest assured that the creator of the universe loves you. And if you say you're not sure, look around. It's on full display. 
Secondly, when we see a list like this and we realize that we fall short and those who love us fall short as well, we begin to doubt that we can ever love this way. And left to your own, I promise you that you cannot. But we are called to love. John, 1 John 4.10 says, this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And verse 11 says, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Listen, we can be known as a teaching church. We can be known as a contemporary church. We can be known as a small group church. We can be known as a worship church. We can be known as a disciple church. If we're not known as a loving church, it'll never endure. This is what we're called to because we've been loved. We need to reflect that. So understand that you are loved. Understand that we need to love as Christ loved us. That's the call, no matter how difficult that is. And here's the third thing, we respond in worship. We're ending this service with communion. I'm going to call the ushers forward. If you haven't taken communion with us before, if you're visiting, please understand. If you've given your life to Jesus Christ, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you are more than welcome to partake. But this is for the family of Jesus Christ. If you don't trust in him as Savior, just let the elements pass. It's no big deal. Nobody's going to care. Secondly, just as a reminder, whether you've been with us or whether you're new, when we take communion here, we pass the elements once, but there's two elements, which means you have to grab two cups. They're stacked on top of each other. Don't just take the top one, take the bottom one so that you get both of them. This is a dexterity test that you must pass before you're allowed to participate. Why we do it, I have no idea, but it's how it works here. And we are told to celebrate communion in remembrance of what Jesus Christ did for us. As we prepare our hearts for communion, I would challenge you, reflect on this. Greater man, greater love has no man than he's willing to lay down his life for his friends. That's your Savior, that's your Lord. His love is not theoretical, it is on full display. Let's pray. Father, we um, celebrate who you are. And I look at this list and I look at this definition and I got a lot of work to do. And then I look to you. And you have loved us well. And for that we praise you. Jesus, we are grateful that you are just not God, that you are just not sovereign, that you are just not Lord. You are all of those things. But you are also patient. You are also kind. You bear all things. You believe all things. You hope all things. You endure all things. And today we praise your name because your love never fails. Thank you, Jesus.